I cannot go a single day without, you know, you know, uh, the hauntology of jizz in my civic duty. I'm E. And I'm M. And welcome to Blood and Turf, a podcast about the links between ideology of turfs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. Listeners, it's 4pm. Time for your dick flattening. This episode is the first in a series in which we'll be looking at fascist aspects of masculinity and masculine aspects of fascism, specifically the penis. We have such a good episode full of as many dick jokes as, as you can take. But also before that, I just wanted to shout out our excellent new music, which you would have just heard by Molly Noise at Impure Noise on Twitter. She put together some like motifs for us specifically about various kind of things we're going to be delving into in further episodes. And um, as you just heard, they're, they're real fucking sick. They're great. Content warnings for this episode are... Specific and detailed discussions of the penis as an organ, generalized discussions of serious sexual assault, STIs, homophobia, seraphobia, and transphobia. This episode is specifically about fascist masculinity, and therefore when we speak of the fascist penis, we are talking about the natal cisgender penis of a fascist man. This obviously has nothing to do with how real dicks look, exist, and function, but this is the context in which we will, by default, be talking about penises for this episode. If this is upsetting, this is probably not the episode for you, and that's okay. To explain the role of the penis in fascism, we first have to look at the role of like phallocentric aspects of society. So we've prepared a brief dong civics class for the listener. We're going to explain how, how the penis is essential to like modernist civics, because you can't really understand how the penis interacts with fascism unless you understand the ways in which it interacts with masculinity within like wider society as a whole and what could be more civic than shaking someone's hand or taking an oath to become a member of a jury things like this straightforward manly reliable things to do and they're so manly that it turns out Everything is about the penis. All of the oaths are about bull fondling or jizzing or a combination of the two, um, which is, is great. I love to know that my society is based on dick jokes. 
I mean, my society is based on dick jokes, but I mean, you know, historical, historical society has been founded on dick jokes, apparently. So that's a, a good time for everyone. I feel like, I feel like we, we can either start by talking about the Pope, or we can start by oh. talking about, um, like, promises and, and testifying as a witness. I think that, I think that promises are actually very specifically important to a historical understanding of society because honor culture is like a big deal pre like state obviously like not the police because the police were extremely modern invention but like you know the proto-police in terms of like a, a state enforcement arm if you look at how societies function through history and at different levels of complexity you need some kind of like social element which starts off as shaming when you have like small hyper interrelated groups and then when community shaming doesn't work anymore, then you need to like, you know, get some soldiers in to come knock your head in if you do something wrong. You go from like community shaming to societal norms, and then you go from societal norms to civilizational hegemony. Yeah, and then and then you like roll that out to, you know, fucking um Tanoi announcements about how mask compliance works with no governmental uh fucking provisions for for for, for the masks themselves. Or, or or you know, whatever, just as one example. Yeah, to be clear, we're not an anti-mask podcast. No, we are pro-mask. We are pro. We are pro-epidemiology. We're anti-government. There's a difference. Yeah, tough on government. Tough on the causes of government. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Um, we, one of which is apparently the penis, which is what we're going to be covering right now. So, um, as with everything, it goes back to the fucking Romans. Yeah, so, testifying. Classic. You're, you're a classically educated young lad. Where does the word testifying come from? Oh, this is fun. This is fun. It's, 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 from, it's from the roots of testis and facere, which are to witness and to make. And you will, it will not have escaped your ears, dear listener, that, that testis sounds very much like testi, testis, because they are the same, they come from the same root word. Because when you witnessed an oath, you would do so... By, by fondling bulls. I think specifically there's like a couple of different ways in which the, in which they did this, right? Because like, yeah. there's definitely like a prominent version of this is that someone else would be, fond would be fondling your bulls as the method of administering the oath. Like you would take the oath while somebody was cupping you. Yeah. This is still, the reason why I mentioned the Pope earlier is that, th is that like this is still done with the Pope. Like they, they have a visual inspection to ensure that the Pope is like a complete male. Oh yeah, they're witnessing his balls as well as the balls being a witness of his character, I suppose. It's like, it's like double ball witnessing, double testes. And this, this is in the context of the Pope becoming like ceremonially the head of state. Like there's this like aspect that there has to be like a, a verifiable phallus. Yeah, although to be fair, that only came about because of, uh, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure she identified as a woman, um, being the Pope and then being like, oh, bollocks, why didn't we do a bollocks check? We'll, uh, we'll make sure we'll do those in the future, I guess. Anyway, so I think the thing about the, thing about the, the ball fondling thing is... It's like, incredibly I mean, it's, it's, it's like, where do you start with it? Like, it's, it's, it's so ripe with meaning because it's, it's, like, it's just very blatantly obvious about what it is. Like... A, there's like this kind of like trust and security aspect because you've got someone's gen like you've got your genitals in someone's hand while you're promising to say while you're promising to like tell the truth. 
but B, there's also this like um, like more symbolically sexual aspect to it, where whereby the phallus as an organ is the way that you prove that that your word is good. There's something about the the phallus and its essential qualities within the eyes of the people who are part of this civic relationship, which means that it is a sufficiently worthy organ as to guarantee the trustworthiness of the man. It, it kind of reminds me in terms of like this weird pseudoscientific witnessing of um, like, you, you know, like virginity checks, which obviously in, 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 unfortunately in some, in some places people still believe in, but like they were like just almost to the point of like being a legal document. People be like, ah, yes, that's just, that's just how you check these things in this kind of like, it's almost like physical markers of, of, of like veracity, um, which I think is very interesting considering that balls change when it's cold and stuff. So like, it's just, it's just weird to me that you would base like something so important on like a very changeable body part. I don't know what to say in response to that. That is a very good point. But on the other hand, masculinity is not ever really accused of being logical. Well, yeah, but I, I, I just, I'm, I'm very interested in the sense of the fact that for a lot of for a lot of human history, even before we understood like you know germ theory, basic anatomy, people were pretty like aware of balls make sperm, and sperm has something to do with fertility and is therefore linked to virility, which is therefore linked to citizenry. Because obviously, before you have like you know universal uh, suffrage or gender equality or a combination of the two, balls were almost entirely literally linked to your ability to participate in societies of free existence. The thing that I mentioned about the phallus being this organ which has this unique quality that's applied to it, that means it's capable of being the guarantor of everything like truthful and good about a man, is is like kind of um, connected to this this role that the penis generally has as being the ultimate like representative of deeds because of what the penis physically does when it comes to like biological reproduction. I think early kind of human societies were clearly viewing it as being like one of the ultimate productive components of the, of the body and this is like pretty clearly represented in even up to like modern propaganda where you start seeing metaphorical representations of the penis in you know propaganda posters where there's like men holding like prominent rifles or like missiles going towards an enemy country or people like you know doing a dig for victory type thing where they're plunging um like a a like well-built spade into fertile soil this is kind of tied into this civic aspect of the penis being like an article of, of of oaths whereby everything that's like productive about an actual human being and everything that involves the human being within wider society and within the, and like to their productive relationship with wider society is represented through like this cultural fetish with the penis and this is this like gets represented in a lot of visual ways in in like modern societies and in classical societies because you know we get it into it both in, in things like propaganda and in and in films and also in terms of like things like phallic architecture. Phallic architecture is very instructive when it comes to explaining how dong civics works because unlike with specific types of physical tools and here I'm particularly thinking of the force of arms weaponry um, buildings are totally universal. Not everyone in society will pick up a sword or a gun, like, and that's 
a trend which has continued, you know, kind of going right from the Bronze Age forward. The, the percentage of society that engages in, in armed combat has decreased, but we still do engage in large-scale production within, within like, modern, like, privileged Western nations, particularly when it comes to the building of buildings and the, the construction of great works. So phallic architecture is quite important because it's one of these constant currents whereby the way in which the penis is represented has remained fairly unchanged. And there's both literal representations of the penis, of the penis within phallic architecture and there's also metaphorical ones. So I found this uh, fascinating PDF of a, a book called the encyclopedia of the penis and like and it has this it has this uh, entry on architecture and it, it kind of summarizes it as being um, the different types can be summarized as follows i'm, I'm quoting here um, one literal representations of the penis typically for the purpose of, of phallus worship in pre-modern and or non-western cultures um i frankly think that bit's a little bit inaccurate i think there's perf like a, a perfectly current modern continuation of phallus worship within like western cultures to be frank like that's just obvious especially in architecture um two phallic towers um buildings understood to, con to connote the phallus in its outward form in its proportions it re it resembles the penis in its erect condition its outline may be further bolstered by allusions intended or otherwise to a glans scrotum or even foreskin three buildings as freudian phallic objects Sigmund Freud identified certain objects as phallics, uh, as phallic, for their unquestionable connotations of masculinity. Pipes, cigars, walking sticks, overcoats, and furled umbrellas are examples of metonymically phallic objects. In architecture, steel, chrome, dark glass, and leather may be construed as phallic in themselves. The same may be said of exposed structures and plants. Four, buildings with a phallic purpose. These are buildings designed or adapted explicitly for penile functions or use. There may be more types of phallic architecture, but these are the main categories. Um, and it's those last two categories that I think are particularly instructive for the, for the modern example, but like I can come back to those in a second. Um, well, so the gherkin is not just phallic in its literal phallus shape, but also it's the perfect example of phallic architecture. E even without a Leatherman conference going on next to the Housebound conference, you know, it's got all the dark glass, the chrome, that kind of stuff. Right, and it also fulfills a governmental function. Like it's a, it's the focal, it's the focal point of power. Yeah, which clearly had not escaped notice of of the architect. So um, this, I'm to be honest, I'm not a big fan of Freud for a number of reasons, um, which don't need going into at the moment. But this this third point that the 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 encyclopedia has just made, where it refers to these kind of generalized aspects of buildings like um, exposed structures and, 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 and the generalized architecture of a building being phallic. But the thing I think is really critical to understand about this is the way in which this Freudian conception of buildings as, as like metaphorically phallic objects links into the conscious fascist understanding of, of buildings and the role that they filled within like the fascist politic. I'm quoting from an article on like worldarchitecture.org called Nazi Architecture as, as an Effective Weapon. I'll link this in the show notes. Quote, for Hitler and Speer, architecture was not simply the art of giving form to space. It was the art of creating power through monumental spatial forms. Critical architects such as Ewald Weissmann and Leopold Lambert have shown how the manipulation of spatial forms has a profound political implication in, in the control and, of mobility and visibility and the deployment of violence. 
The wall of separation and the myriad checkpoints built by Israel on Palestinian land, brilliantly examined by Weizmann and Lambert, are primary examples of this militarization of architecture. This is why Lambert argues that these are weaponized forms of architecture. Walls and other architectural striations are nonetheless weaponized in a distinctive way as apparatuses of kinetic capture. However, there's, uh, sorry, that, that's that section of the quote um, over. I'll, I'm jumping ahead to a, second, to a second component of that article. Hitler and Speer, however, were intellectually disinterested in this type of weaponized architecture, which they relegated to lesser functionaries. Basically, it was too primitive for them. Um, they were interested, rather, in an architecture weaponized as an apparatus of effective capture designed to create what geographer Ben Anderson calls effective atmospheres, spatial environments that exert pre-discursive, not wholly conscious pressures on the body. All architectural forms create effective atmospheres in addition to organizing movement. And my distinction between apparatuses of kinetic and effective capture is purely heuristic and not meant to create a dichotomy or typology. Yet what Speer reveals in Inside the Third Reich is that the main purpose of Hitler's monumental architecture was to inculcate effective intensities on the bodies contemplating it, capturing their gaze and attention. End quote. That's a hell of a mouthful of a passage. Like this is written by like an like a, like by an architectural theorist. So that's a little bit difficult to, to disentangle. But it becomes more clear when you start looking at like fascist architecture in a wider sense. Um, and in a way, like Hitler isn't the best person to look at. Like Mussolini is like absolutely the poster child for this because Mussolini's architectural po uh, projects were kind of wild. Like there was a lot of there's like a there's like a lot of stuff with like very kind of like hewn from stone depictions of these like of like Mussolini's personal face, like his like huge looming head, all of this kind of thing. And there's several examples of architectural works by uh, like the Italian fascist state, which are considered to be like world historical art, like um, examples of phallic architecture. The reason why this is important is that it links into another aspect of like phallic representations and manifestations of virility realized through the state and virility realized through like public works. And that's kind of like these these um, reimaginings of like a heroic classical past, which just dovetails directly into into like phallic stuff because you've got all these kind of like classic heroes. You've got these huge Corinthian columns. You you've frequently got stuff that is like semi literal representations of penises. Interestingly, it's quite often in a kind of like more intellectualized like modern version. Um, they don't. T they didn't tend to do like exact replicas of classical architecture, which is amusing because it means that they've missed out some one of these fascinating bits of classical architecture and iconography called the fasciculum, which is this kind of Roman symbol or charm which takes the form of like a winged penis or a penis that has some other kind of like attribute physically attached to it. It's normally wings. These are often used as like decorative motifs on buildings in like classical Roman ruins. And it's it's basically it was basically meant to be a, a a good luck charm, and it had various different forms of religious significance. But that got translated in the construction of the Roman state and like Roman cities into being this aspect of civic architecture. But through being an aspect of civic civic architecture, it meant that like the penis was being wedded to the state and the the constructive works of that state. 
And at that point, I think that the difference between the word Faskinum and the word Fasces becomes like, yeah, technically they're different words. They come from, di from completely different roots, but their actual like metaphorical and political meaning begins to blend together. The Fasces is the bundle of sticks from which we get the term fascism. The Faskinum is simply this like winged magical penis that has these various different like metaphysical properties and is then being like represented in physical form once they are both like connected to like architecture and the state those two things become like highly indicative of the ways in which like the phallus can be blended into like state architecture the reason why this is important is that like state architecture is one of the primary ways in which like authoritarian and technocratic governments express like the like the supposed virility and productivity of their of their way of organizing society that's why you get these like huge building projects with authoritarian leaders and often like you know deeply inefficient ones but these huge building projects nonetheless it's because they want to engage in like a pseudo phallic exploitative productive spectacle and to, it, it's it's the construction of like modern totems essentially What's interesting about the neoclassical uh, kind of stuff and yeah, like the sanitization, uh, which was across the board, like neoclassical stuff has been like literally whitewashed in the sense that they, they, they blasted all the color off the, the gaudy murals, but, but also in the sense of like this kind of stuff, like, oh, we don't want dicks everywhere. But like the Romans were fucking obsessed with penises. And obviously like Italian fascists would have known this because Famously, like, Rome, even today, just has untold amounts of archaeological kind of art, uh, artifacts, I guess, which, like, they can't even afford to excavate, but they are everywhere. You know, Rome is a layer cake of, of history. Italians would have known this, mostly because, like, you know, penises would just be turning up everywhere. But, like, the, the, the Romans were obsessed with penises in, like, every variety that you can think of, like, um, civically, sexually, but, but also just, like, a totem thing but like it would have permeated pretty much every kind of aspect i guess of like the normal day-to-day -day life stuff that you would do it is um, interesting because like i think that the it's almost as if they had a sort of healthier relationship to it but i, I suppose we don't really have the the architectural evidence to speculate on whether that relationship was truly healthier it does it does uh, amuse me though that it, it does sort of indicate that fascism specifically which obviously does have an unhealthy relationship with the penis has also sort of disempowered it by only making it have this like very like specific and limited role. I didn't know what to say then, I'm sorry. Um... No, it's all good. Should we talk about veiny collectivist arms? Yes, let us speak of the veiny collectivist arms. Um... Uh, so yeah, who here loves um, uh, the industrial workers of the world? <laughs> <laughs> like the world's shittest DJ, like shout out for the wobs. Woo! Uh, we're, this, yeah. is a, this is a very pro wobbly podcast. Again, just want to issue a clarification. We're 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 in favour of of the wobblies and of face masks, and we're against governments. Yeah, please do not cancel us for being anti international unions or anti unions or anti mask. We just hate. We just love the left and trans people, and we hate fascism. The end. Yeah, the reason the reason why we bring this up is because there's the slight issue of veiny collectivist arms. Um, veiny collectivist arms are the, the chef's kiss version of like perfect example of 
of how the phallus as a propaganda item combines all of these different aspects of fetishizing the the power of the masculine body in a, in a kind of symbolic way but also it's about joining all of the men in society together into one collectivist phallic unit a phallic phalanx basically um, and the veiny collectivist arms are a staple of syndicalist political posters, or Leninist political posters, of fascist political posters. Basically, any political poster from like particularly the the immediate post World War One period, there'll be just veiny collectivist arms all over the fucking place. They'll be holding tools, they'll be protecting fainting women, they'll be like fighting off invaders, whether those invaders are like filthy capitalists or or like invading Jews or like people from the nation next door. Like regardless of what the specific political enemy is, the arms are doing something. The arms themselves are being represented in this in this like veiny phallic way. Uh, they will be holding phallic objects. Sometimes they will be holding the flag of the country. All of this kind of stuff. Thrusting organs of action, which are a perfect... A per, they, are, they, are, they are the PG-13 phallus in, for your propaganda needs. None of, none of these uh, propaganda artists, as far as I can tell, have managed to uh, ever persuade the, the, party, the party central committee to sign off on what I can only assume at some point must have happened, which is like that the ultimate, the ultimate like, fascist poster image would be like the man is like the central figure in this propaganda poster he's fully nude he's standing aside like the landscape of the country probably grasping his penis probably with both hands and like defeating the foe using the literal penis instead of a, instead of a symbolic one while the national flag like flutters in the background I mean, you've arguably just described all of Tom of Finland's career, uh, although he, he wasn't a fascist. He was satirizing like, that exact kind of masculinity, and that's why a lot of his characters were cops and soldiers. He basically just was like, well, as a homosexual, I can see what you're trying to achieve, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go the whole hog, see how you like it. And famously, even though 2020 gays look at the Tom of Finland stuff and find it really a little bit out there and, you know, still a little bit uh, transgressive, the dude's career started in, like, incredibly heterosexual publications, you know, arguably, uh, like, publicly heterosexual. Like, he did a lot of stuff for sports magazines and, like, you know, just guys being dudes. But with all this, like, hypermasculine, fascistic, almost propaganda poster-style renderings of dudes there's um a turn of the century artist who did very like high quality illustrations for like men's fashion do you mean Leidecker? that's the one i was googling Leidermeyer and coincidentally found like um a soft core gay porn thing if you haven't been able to tell from a podcast already i am when our when our twitter account tweets about kevin a coin it's from me it's always from me. I am the gay one. You can always tell. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's um, I, I'm probably saying his name wrong. But yeah. yeah so uh, Leon Decker, I think, is like the, like the, the posh version of this. Because like, mm-hmm. there's all of these like, clean cut, strapping young lads. And like, occasionally there'll be a woman in there somewhere, but the woman will usually be wearing men's clothes. <laughs> She's off living her fucking life. Yeah, and, and, and Leon Decker was born in 1874 um, and lived until 1951. So was like at this exact kind of time when this stuff was bubbling in the collective unconscious, as, as, um, as like Jung would say. The thing that, the thing that strikes me about uh, the Leon Decker art is that um, 
there's like so many different tropes of like masculine clothing, uh, which is another aspect of civic representations of the phallus. Arguably, that's what dress codes kind of function as, as a way of regulating expressions of masculinity within like a very kind of rectilinear and rigid rule structure, which is inherently phallic. Yeah, I mean, and Leon Decker himself appears to have done a big dick flag pick when, because he was part of the, I think he was to, linked to the Scouts, and there's a Scout poster promoting USA Bonds, which has Liberty dressed in a flag toga, whilst the Scout is holding the world's largest sword in a, like... Hell yes! Incredibly phallic manner. Um <laughs> Both hands, grasping swords, flag in background. There we go. Big, 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 big dick flag pick. Amazing. Amazing. Right. So the thing I wanted to bring up, bring up about this like idealized propaganda poster of, you know, the nude man striding aside the landscape, defeating the, the, the enemy of the nation with his ejaculations, is that's essentially like the, the, the primordial fascist poster man. That's what he's doing in every single one of these posters. It's just kind of like interpreted in various different ways. But it's important to realise that if you want to dig into the the positive aspects of what the the penis is used for in these posters, then you need to kind of realise what the the limitations are in what can be represented in these posters. There are certain things that can't be done. Um, So we have divided this, um, now that we kind of like moved off the subject of dong civics, we've kind of divided this into like dong positivism, so like the things that are good about the penis within the fascist mindset, and like dong negativism, the bad shit that's going on with the penis, like the ways in which the penis is, is either threatened or is threatening. So dong positivism is kind of like the penis as the ultimate organ, as like the ultimate manifestation of like the capacity of your body to do things. When we look at this, you know, this thing that we now have in our mind's eye of, of the guy standing astride the landscape, there's certain things that relate to that kind of image that he can do with the penis, and there's certain things that he can't do with the penis. So for example, the fascist astride the, the propaganda landscape can never use the, like, the virile force of the penis upon the flag you can't use it to like defile the the mother country you can like engage in like a procreative romance with representations of the mother country but you can't do it in a way that is is i guess crude this is very important to fascist understandings of the role of sex in nationalist masculinity because yes obviously you've got to engage in fucking for the nation but it can't be, or at least it's not supposed to be a fucking that's that's directly connected to proper human sexual lust. It's, it's you know... It's interesting that you say that, considering that earlier we were talking about how whether the Romans technically have a healthy view of their penises, because the Romans specifically like have this pretty much codified in their adultery laws. You would have productive sex with your Roman citizen wife, but any real nasty fucking you had to do separately, but you also couldn't do adultery. And, and that's why there was such a thing for sex workers and brothels, because they, li- they literally had it as part of their law. You can produce and you can fornicate, but you can't fuck. Right. Okay. So you can, you can fornicate with like Britannia or Mother Russia, but you can't fuck her. Yeah, you can't fuck Mother Russia. You, that's just, you just can't. Or, 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 or you know, uh, Mother Rome. Like you, you, can't, you cannot be doing that. And it seems like the more fascist society gets, the more um, clearly they have to deal with this, I guess, because the imagery is so obvious, as you said. Right. 
and the only the only other two kinds of sexual activity for the fascist male that fascism as a psychological complex can conceive of is like apart from sex as an act of fornication and production it can only conceive of sexual violence as an act of warfare against like a class enemy or a national enemy or sex as, as like a natural expression of manly desires and like we've just talked about the natural expression of manly desires but the other thing that is like an improper deployment of virile force is obviously like sexual is obviously like sexual violence obviously you can't do sexual violence to britannia either you can only do that against women who are categorized into being class enemies or in certain situations men who are categorized into being class enemies or national enemies yeah which of of, of course at various points in history has has been a you know a literal nationality or ethnicity but also, I think most interestingly, at various points, has been sex workers who are an acceptable kind of like um, outlet for violence, um, which also makes it all the more kind of like fucking interesting and bad that, that people who are TERFs almost certainly tend to be SWERFs and therefore seem to be absolutely fine with this going on. It's like, well done for proving your point, though. Yeah, I mean, fascism has a, has a bit of an interesting relationship with sex workers in general. And I think when we do an episode about TERFs and SWERFs, we'll have to look at the, the fascist relationship with sex workers. But um, yeah. I think it's worth noting that sex workers hold this interesting position within the, the, within, like, the fascist complex, whereby like, under certain kinds of situation, the fascist can make use of sex workers but sex workers are counted as being part of this negative mass of bodies and women that the fascist is meant to be standing against. Hence, um, sex workers are obviously like simultaneously the subjects of like sexual lust by fascist individuals and like the fascist man within that psychological landscape and also they're the subject of sexual violence, which, you know, it goes without saying. It's also the penis can not only do all things in specific ways, but also it is it's like metonymy for the for the for, for the fascist man generally as well which i think goes back to the ball cupping if you are standing trial or making a promise or engaging in an honor system you should be you know forthright and unhonorable and the best you can be and so having having the penis as the example of that within that logic it does make sense for someone to make reference to it when they are engaging in that honor system yeah about the honor system there's kind of two things I want to bring up, and one of them is if you if you take a look at the show notes, it's oh, what about the jizzing? Right, it's the, there's the jizzing um, that I want to talk about, and then there's the thing that I've just uh, highlighted in bold in the show notes, which is kind of like the conclusion to this section. So first yeah. of all, uh, we shall cover jizzing. <laughs> Are you okay? I'm just having I'm just having a moment. My inner fourteen year old is is having a very fun time. Yeah, so when we, when we make reference, while we snigger, to the jizzing, is that in our research on Dong Civics, while we were preparing our Dong PSHE uh, curriculum for you all, we found that it seems relatively apocryphal, but also quite well cited, that handshakes, specifically a spit handshake, is partially an oath of symbolized ejaculation, <laughs> both literally and also the fact that it replaced cutting your hands uh, as an expression of seriousness. And it's like this mingling of, of bodily fluids. Precious uh, bodily fluids. Our precious bodily fluids have to go into this promise to make it extra special. It's, it's also got the, it's also, it's almost got an element of the magical to it, which I think is also interesting when you look at, and this is, this is, a, this is an, another episode, but, 
both classical Rome, which was a pantheistic society, and also kind of neoclassical inspired fascists are uh, obsessed with like ritual and occult. And I think it's just very funny that you've got this weird magician's ritual in pretty modern society. Like even if people don't do literal spit shakes now, people often make a reference to it. It's like, yes, the ritual is complete. We've, we've mingled the fluids. It's all real. I think um, that, yeah, that, that clearly, I think the, the like the mystical aspect of that and the, 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 the semi-religious aspect of that probably has something to do with like the nature of blood and the nature of semen in that they're, they're so connected to like bodily life and bodily sensation that they're probably like the closest that people could come to like a physical representation of actual transmutation of matter by magic. Yeah. Which is probably part of why they had such um, like magical potency within these belief systems. Like particularly, particularly cum has like a lot of, has like a lot of uh, symbolic power because it's like the one thing that we can produce that actually has the capacity to transmutate uh, and create material structures. Do not get me started on the metaphysics of cum because I did spend today reading a lot about Crowley's uh, Eucharist. Which oh god, I is this bloody Alistair Crowley? Yes, yes, Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley, everyone's favourite Rosicrucian edgelord. Um, well, he's such a shithead. Like, you know what? If Alistair Crowley was alive today, he would just be a Bitcoin guy. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he would, specifically because his, his, his attitude to Western occultism, which was, um, for, for the listeners, he had a great impact on modern occultism, modern Western occultism, and specifically was very influenced by, again, neoclassical Western tradition and the Rosicrucians, which were also linked to the kind of Kabbalistic tradition, which has nothing to do with actual Judaism, is like almost entirely a medieval fiction, loosely based slash appropriated slash made up based on what people thought kind of like Jewish mysticism was. But basically Crowley was fucking obsessed with blood and cum. Uh, yes. He basically yes. said that if you, if you came and it wasn't during productive sex, you should eat it or use it in magic. It was very, oh, very... God's sake. And, and blood, similarly, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, a cake of light is something made out of blood and semen mixed together. Please don't cancel this occultist. Yeah, like, I don't have a problem with, with occultists one bit. I just think that Alistair Crowley was a bit of a stupid idiot. Anyway, my point, my point that I was making is that I think this, this mysticism permeates many iterations of Western society, but most interestingly, in a, in, a, in a fascist sense, in our readings, we've come across this almost mystical obsession with the penis as a moral organ, as well as a literal kind of organ of action. Specifically talking about like ejaculation and jizzing, like there's clearly, there's clearly like a link in there with fascist attitudes towards productivism, which we've already gone over. And also like there's that link to fascist attitudes towards violence. Like there's the whole kind of, you know, political power th flows through the barrel of a gun type thing. And yeah, I know that's technically a quote from Mao, but they, they effectively had the same, the same principle. And it's very much about like the flowing of power from like a central masculine political point. What's interesting about all of this and um, the kind of like quite cohesive, especially for fascism um, mm. theory around the proper use of one's penis is that um, our very own homegrown flag respecters 
were literally in an anti-BLM protest where they sought to protect the statues, which is like a, a very perfect example. One of them was caught pissing on them. They were, they were literally using your, their penis to, um, to disrespect uh, a manifestation of the state. I'm pretty sure some of those statues were also representations of great people of the nation. You can't fuck Britannia. You also shouldn't be pissing on Britannia either. This was such a perfect example of disrupting the entire narrative, which is the whole point of, 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 of flag respecters, that like the right got so angry. And even the kind of like journalists who would usually not give a shit were just like, it was an own goal. And it completely put a stop in their usual kind of rhetoric about these kinds of events. One thing that I do find absolutely brilliant about that is that the whole thing was a deeply phallic exercise because they were going out there to defend phallic representations of the state, which were draped in flags from what they saw as an unruly horde of people who were either insufficiently white or just weren't white at all. And then they ended up desecrating the sacred state penis with their own penis. I remember when it happened, because if I remember correctly, it was the same BLM protest where a stupid fucking cop over um, ran over with a horse um, a bunch of people. Well, the horse, I think, ran over people because it was scared, but she clotheslined a traffic light in an attempt to run down people in the protest. Um, and so you had, on the one hand, the state doing very violent repression and, and, and kind of a very bad time for people at or covering the protest. And then the other hand, the right just like completely fucked it. They pissed on their own, they pissed on their donation dick. The thing that I think was interesting about the, the BLM protests, which ended up turning in, in, into like a relative strategic defeat for the street element of fascism in Britain, is that A, they lost a physical tactical confrontation with, with the BLM protesters when they lost a, a confrontation with a reasonably sized protest in Trafalgar Square and areas of the city centre near Trafalgar Square on one of the weekends. Like, they, they, had, they tried to force a pitched battle with them and they got their asses handed to them and there were, like, multiple photos in the papers of English Defence League guys and, like, guys from Chelsea Headhunters just bleeding copiously from head wounds and being chucked downstairs and stuff. And that was combined with this public psychological humiliation of the pissing incident, where like not only did they piss on something, the thing that they specifically pissed on was a memorial to a policeman who had been killed in the line of duty. It was like the ultimate humiliation of their attempt to venerate um, the British state against what was what was an anti-police protest. The thin blue line became the thin yellow line. It was incredible, like. <laughs> I couldn't like if I was a if I was a screenwriter like writing some kind of like political drama and I had that as a subplot in an episode. There's no way that you'd be able to get that past the director. It's just too ridiculous. But it's like the reason it is so ridiculous is because this phallic imagery of fascism is so well fleshed out. Like we're only able to identify it as such a negation of their values because their values are very clearly like sketched out as if they were written in the in in veins on their shafts like it's it's real it's real obvious the other thing in the other way in which i think the 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 pissing incident is instructive is the way in which it ties together the the themes of dong positivism in a kind of like this is how not to do it way you can't you, you can't fornicate, you, you can fornicate with Britannia, but you can't fuck her. Like, you can't have piss fetish. You can't have piss fetish stuff with Britannia. You can't, 
you can't desecrate the flag. You can't use the flag as like a cum rag. You can't piss on the flag. Right, so they've they've screwed up on the physical aspect. And then, then there's like all of this other stuff, like it, it's like an incompetent use of the phallus as a tool. The guy was drunk and urinating in public. That's phallic incompetence. There's no other way to describe it. Um, yeah, his, his crime was not using his, fa- his fascist penis correctly. Like yes. he should have got a license to do fash dick stuff. Lastly, it's an example of accidental phallic architecture. Oh, so it right. is. So to explain what I mean by this, the last concept that the Encyclopedia of the Penis describes is buildings with a phallic purpose. These are buildings designed or adapted explicitly for penile functions or use. Um, and the example, the example that the Encyclopedia uses um, include, includes a uh, I'll quote here, examples of architecture with a phallic purpose include the work of the British architect Nigel Coates. His installation Hypnerotosphere for the 2008 Venice Architecture Biennale included highly anthropomorphic furniture that was intended to invite penetration. Finally, Foster and Partners Commerzbank Tower in Frankfurt should be mentioned for its notorious top floor male restroom here the, ur- here, the urinals are fixed against a glass, roll, a glass wall, enabling top executives to urinate symbolically and literally over the entire city. Also, the most phallic architecture, according to that definition of all, is of course the urinal, which is what they turned the statues into. Right, right. That's why, that's why it's, an accidental, it's an accidental manifestation of phallic architecture in a way that completely drones fascist phallic architecture. The, like, the whole pissing incident is... A, Fucking incredible. For a goldsmith student, I might perhaps write my dissertation on this one. Yeah, you can have that one for free, kids. <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 it's a perfect use case of positive dong use done wrong, but also dong negativism, which we are going to cover shortly. Going back to collect, veiny collectivist arms, which uh, feature in the wet dreams of, of many a good commie, one of the most important things about kind of dung positivism and when it becomes especially sublimated into things like hand tools and guns is that you can kind of get lost in this kind of collective circle jerk of uh, the cadre. Again, please don't cancel us because... If you have the gun as a metaphor for penis and you are, for example, in a revolutionary struggle or a war against uh, an evil other, etc., etc., for both practical and kind of fascist philosophy reasons, you need people to be bound to each other in like a, a, a cadre or a unit um, and to their guns specifically. So you get this weird crossover, which was like really famously kind of parodied in Full Metal Jacket of the literal personification of your penis as, sorry, your gun as like your penis, penis slash wife. Like the whole kind of like, it's both the Britannia that you can't fuck, but you can kill with and you should marry and cherish, but it is also a weapon of death. At the end of the day, like playing with dicks is pretty fun. So you, you get this kind of, I guess, full embracing of uh, that fun aspect. But one thing that I think is like instructive about Full Metal Jacket is uh, like, I think the mantra that they're meant to recite is like, this is my rifle, there are many like it, but this one is mine. Yes, exactly. Right. Right, so there's this there's this like band of brothers collectivism to it, and that's both uh, indicative of how it's viewed as a as a personal martial penis, 
and also the the wife aspect of it because it's a bit like the state-issued waifu the state-issued waifu in the fascist imagination is always like an identikit waifu the it's it's the waifu that you get out of a box and that that waifu that you get out of the box that comes from the state is something that marries you to the collective of of men in the state it's almost like the penis is a totem in a society where you are meant to live and die for the state and be part of the machinery of the state. Of course, your waifu slash penis slash gun slash combination of all three, flashlight, rifle attachment, I don't know. I, I, I don't go on those parts of the internet. It's almost like it is specifically uh, identical because it is the only place where you can project any remaining feelings of individualism. But because it's bound to this identical waifu, slash totem it can only ever be kind of within your imagination because that's where your individual is identity stays is in your imagination as long as it's grounded to a reality where everyone is the same that's a slight kind of tangent to to dong positivism but i think is relevant specifically to full metal jacket which is like a super rich vein for this kind of analysis and if you haven't seen it and you are listening to this podcast you will enjoy watching it so go and watch it um, it, it, it's horrifically um, racist and horrible, but it, it is a, a film about the Vietnam War, so it's got all of that stuff in it. Um, it but it, it's like one of the ultimate like Western fictional depictions of the soldier male. Yeah, it has this comradely reverie to it, specifically referenced not just with the, with this, the famous gun scene, but at the end of the film, after doing a series of war crimes, if I'm if I'm correct. They go off singing um, like a happy, I think, song that's to do with Mickey Mouse, like yeah. as, as they wander off. Yeah, and th th this is this this absurd scene where they've literally just you know killed a child prisoner, and there's all these kind of you know American soldiers walking through this blasted heath. Where there's like buildings on fire in the background, and they're singing this like lovely little jolly song about Mickey Mouse. It's like they're going for a little walk in the park. It's like they're, it's almost as if they were like five-year-olds at nursery singing the, the little nursery rhyme about like the teddy bear's picnic. Oh, it's specifically a soothing mechanism. And like the main character says he's having all these existential dread kind of thoughts and they are soothed by the, the war crime and song that they've just done. As part of this kind of like collective unit of military men, you are both empowered, literally in the sense of the Vinnie collectivist arms, but also almost empowered morally to do all of the war crimes. Um, and the soothing aspect is, is you're nurtured collectively as well, which I think when talking about fascist martial penis imagery, it's you kind of neglect the fact that if you're going to get soldiers to do heinous acts on other human beings, it does take at least some psychological toll and you have like the soothing for the psychological toll wrapped up in the doing of the thing that causes the toll in the first place. And both aspects are found in a very phallic uh, kind of like headspace, I guess. Um, pardon the pun. Um, because it is, you it have is interesting. It is interesting how that's an actual mechanism by which the phallus is used to intervene so directly. In, in the mentality of the of the soldier male that it, it it's fulfilling like almost like social reproductive roles 
Yes, no, that's what I mean. And, and, and especially when you think of like a literal military unit from the examples that we're looking at anyway, you have these homosocial environments where like people often are sleeping and eating and wanking in close proximity with each other. So the penis will also physically be present in all of your pack bonding exercises as well, even if the gun isn't there. Yeah, it's, you know, it's literally circle jerk. Fundamentally, a lot of this stuff boils down to circle jerk. Obviously, the the classic representation of the circle jerk rather than the individual phallus is the fasces itself. One thing I wanted to bring up about the fasces was just a a brief explanation of the role that it played in, in ancient Rome. And essentially what it was is it did start out as a, as a symbol of state. Or at least that's that's its its initial primary symbology purpose. A fasces is a bundle of sticks. The kinds of people who are going to be listening to this podcast almost certainly already know that. The purpose of this bundle of sticks was it was essentially a crude staff or instrument of violence. It was it was basically you know a way of very quickly making a basic weapon. Sometimes there will be like an axe head bound into this bundle of rods if somebody needed to engage in like capital punishment rather than corporal punishment. And these were issued to certain elements of the civic apparatus of the kind of Etruscan civilization and Roman civilizations, particularly like even even in like pre-Republican Rome where they still had, when they still had kings, which it's, and it's believed that they adopted this from Etruscan traditions. The Etruscan civilization was one of the Italian classical civilizations that predated the Romans. In general, and the link between the Etruscans and the Romans is a little bit unclear, but in general, between these two civilizations, the Fasces essentially had like this role in the exercise of magisterial authority. Like it was connected to judges, it was connected to civic justice and legitimacy. It also had this collectivist imagery in the sense that the reason it was a bundle of sticks is because, like Em said, it makes a better weapon because you can't break all the sticks at once. Which is obviously yeah, there, where... there are direct physical reasons why it's good. It's also easier to make because it means that you don't have to pick a good piece of wood. Yeah. So you can see why it arose. It, it almost to me seems like the, the kind of like material needs to have a bundle of sticks then gave rise to the kind of collectivist imagery of having a bundle of sticks. It's a very accessible but effective weapon. And because it's a bundle of sticks and not a sword, you can deliver like quite brutal beatings without necessarily killing the populace. So it's very good for these kind of like primitive classical civic uh, city militias. The specific people who had fasces in, in the Republican period of Rome were these uh, officers called lictors, who were attendants of consuls, and consuls were like the highest elected official official role within uh, Republican Rome. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like being a governor. Yeah, the American system is specifically based on Republican Rome, so like half of this stuff is literally written into the American Constitution. Yeah, you know, essentially these, you know, we don't have a modern equivalent of lictors, like the closest thing would be your secret security, your secret service detail if you were the president or something. We don't have like a modern, like, civil service equivalent of being a lictor, like there's not even a guy carrying around a a ceremonial fasces within, within like American politics in the way that like, Black Rod carries the mace in Parliament over here in the UK. But essentially this, these guys, these lictors, would like walk around with the consuls or the praetors who were a junior civic role. And they would just like walk around the city with these guys if they needed to go places or if they needed to go on processions or, or like engage in some kind of like civic pageantry. Like uh, a tri- 
yeah like a triumph like they were very commonly seen in triumphs and like a lot of uh like classical depictions of these that you see in like carved stone reliefs is of lictors in triumphs like following in a in a procession they'll be there with their like phrygian caps on uh, which is another interesting like piece of phallic classical imagery it's a very phallic type of hat um and specifically were things that you had to earn basically for being good at statecraft and good at military exploits and it was a party for being a good boy so <laughs> sorry was, uh, you, you cut out for a minute you're talking about what the triumph is right yeah and i was saying like it linked because it's you would have to earn one um by doing a specific number of kind of good statecraft things and or military exploits and because of rome the military exploits were, were privileged over the statecraft but it was a, it was a special party for being a special boy so it was another example of like this kind of pleasure 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 principle as it relates to kind of like the state and the phallus being intertwined what i do think is amusing about these like intertwinings of like the state and civic society and the phallus and the individuals within it is that it's almost like a pyramid scheme because like there's the individual man and the individual man is being conned into thinking that he's like the perfect example of of like national rectitude and forthrightness and like strength uh, like he's 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 throbbing with nationalist power, but he's just part of this like local phallic fascist, which is his like unit, his 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 like a uh, his like neighborhood association or whatever, and they get together in their little section of the triumphal parade, and then that forms like another little stick in the even bigger bundle, which is like the the city wide triumphal parade, and that becomes like the ultimate like phallic uh, civic thing that snakes its way through the body of the city, like demonstrating and exerting power in a political or physical sense, and just like venerating and upholding the state and authoritarian norms. And it's like, you've got this kind of pyramid schemes of phalluses that then become components of fasces all the way up until you've got Leviathan, essentially. Yeah, this is why the, this is why fascists fucking love the Romans, um, is because they again have this very explicitly codified into law. Like you were the patron or the client of, you were supposed to be anyway, as a citizen, everyone was supposed to have a uh, have a ha, ha, have someone they were a patron for and be a patron of someone which obviously links um not just in nazism but nazism specifically to this idea of the fuhrer and everyone being like you said in this pyramid scheme like an alien like an economically alienated form of patrilineality yeah absolutely and yeah it's and and, and then obviously you can specifically reproduce that in the family unit which also relates to the penis with a paterfamilias that is very specifically set on a really specific hierarchy like depending and, yeah and the, where role, you the role of all of these like uh references back to like a positive penis means that this constantly stays the preserve of the civically legitimate warrior male it's the reserve of the legitimate citizen and the legitimate citizen is a strong man who is amongst strong men. An endless recursion of bundles of dick. Yeah, it's a, it, it, is, it is like a leviathan made up of a thousand worms. I am pretty sure the image you, you just described actually exists in the book that you've been citing, um, which is male fantasies. And if that image doesn't exist, then, then I owe you money. Yeah, so this, this episode, and um, this is the first of like the two-parter episode which we're making right now, is heavily relying on a two-part book, which we've referenced a couple of times on the show, called Male Fantasies by a German psychoanalytical theorist who made a detailed study of fascism and the mental complexes that construct fascism. 
His name's Klaus Theowolites. We've mentioned him before. The book Male Fantasies comes in two volumes, and it's absolutely indispensable if you want to understand, like, the sexual and um, just, like, all of the weird sexual bullshit and, and how that kind of, like, relates to the racial bullshit that, uh, that goes into fascism. Uh, but sp- and very specifically kind of, like, the violent and weird and... and uh, strange aspects of the fascist mentality. Yeah, in our second episode, we're going to be delving into dong negativism, which, as we said earlier, covers the penis as threatened and the penis as threatening. Um, the second part of the episode will focus much more heavily on, because of this, um, elements of homophobia, uh, racism, and um, uh, general general bad stuff, which is, 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 is why I wanted to cover what they do. Yeah, I, I think... This this episode has been fairly this this half has been fairly like humorous and mild. The second half, it's not going to be like nasty, but the content will be a little bit heavier. Yeah, uh, at the at the other end of um, you know, every, every phallus has a neuroses behind it, or or seven or, or seventy, and um, dong activism largely focuses on those uh, with specific references to physical threats, metaphysical threats, existential threats, which being as those threats are in the mind of a fascist are. You know, just just usually people or, or or normal stuff. You know. Yeah, sometimes it's just stuff that doesn't even exist. Obviously, it's now becoming uh, like a a long running issue that we haven't yet uploaded detailed show notes. Um, we will do so, particularly for this episode because it's dealing with a rather complex topic. Um, so yeah, watch out for that. It'll be on our Dreamwith account, and we will tweet out links to that when we um, get around to it, like the incompetent sods that we are. Uh, one other thing that we need to cover is we have a couple of corrections from our previous episodes. In our previous episode, when we made reference to um, incarcerated trans people and gender recognition certificates, I'm not sure whether we uh, just said some absolute bollocks or whether we didn't make ourselves clear enough, but if you are transgender and you're incarcerated, a GRC does not guarantee that you'll be housed in the correct prison. Often Unfortunately, um, uh, as with the many other um, human rights abuses that incarcerated people face, transgender people tend to be housed in the wrong prison, whether or not they have a GRC. A GRC can only be considered as evidence and is the minimum requirement for you to be housed in the correct prison. It doesn't guarantee it at all, unfortunately. With that, we have one final update for our listeners, and that's uh, this episode's uh, update on Cult Watch. So, yeah, it's time for the culting forecast. Whether or not you are keeping up with the hellscape that is uh, new to front groups, our duty you may or may not have heard of. They are a new front group linked to various known turfs, as with every front group which pops up, pretending to be a legitimate organization. The reason that we are mentioning it is that it is linked to Susan Evans, who is one of the ex-GIC nurses who tries to make money off of TERFs talking about how awful it was working at a gender clinic. Um, This is relevant because it is uh, quite instrumental, it seems, in a current court case where a detransitioned woman who went to, I think, both the Tavistock, which is the youth GIC, and an adult one, um, is suing them based on the fact that she claims that there weren't enough uh, hoops and gatekeeping apparatus in place. Um, the reason this is relevant is because their logo and banner images, which are their attempt at trying to get 
treatment for transgender people under 25 banned is ripe with anti-vax symbolism, which M can illuminate a little bit more. Yeah, so this is, it's almost interesting in terms of how simplistic it is, to be honest. So uh, if you were to go to the Our Duty uh, Twitter page, or um, you know any of their any of their like online presences, you'll see their you'll see their banner and like one part of it is this this kind of like shield logo that looks like relatively generic and NGO ish, and then what they've done is they've taken they they basically stolen the uh, symbol that you'll see at supermarket checkouts for the under twenty five things for if you're getting ID checked for alcohol, and that's their like that's the the visual component of their under twenty five propaganda campaign. And then next to that, there's a little kind of like, there's like a stop sign. And in the center of the stop sign, there is a syringe. I feel like this is, this is like quite relevant in relation to the subject matter of this episode because, or really the subject matter of, ne of next episode, because it's almost like they've picked this like, well, I mean, they have picked a threatening phallic symbol, but particularly the symbol of the syringe um, and the way that uh, syringes and injections and like injection related medical interventions relates to like anti-vax uh, terminology and discussions is it's like a symbol that's pregnant with meaning. They get particularly freaked out with like pills and injections and like the physical aspects of one having to interact with these concepts. Like you have to swallow the pill, the injection penetrates your body, it does something to your bloodstream, something is happening to you that is outside of your control. Um, these things tie into a lot of things that we've been discussing in relation to kind of like the general psychological fears of fascism, and they tie into the conspiratorial aspects of pseudoscience. Uh, sorry, the conspiracy theory aspects of pseudoscience, rather, because it implies that there's like a hostile aspect to the doctor that's giving you the injection on a okay, fundamental level. And, you know, Anybody who has any like decent knowledge of uh, trans healthcare or like gender clinics will know that like quite often doctors aren't our friends. However, the way in which these people are using it is in this manner that relates to anti-vax iconography and anti-vax symbology, where there's this threatening physical process that comes from outside. The, th the physical process is like a combination of, of aspects. One of those aspects is like, a thing that is happening to your body. And the thing that is happening to your body is out of your control. But it also ties into this vein of like anti-intellectualism, whereby like the reason why that thing is out of your control is because the comprehension of that thing is being gatekeeped, or like there's like a gatekeeper of that thing. And that gatekeeper is the medical establishment. And the medical establishment wish to force this injection upon you. They wish to force vaccines upon you. And then there's this overlap, which we've alluded to before, with, you know, treatments for people who are going through transition. And the way that they word this is, you know, as, as, as most listeners of this podcast will know, they'll say that they're kind of shoving gender ideology down your throat. They're doing gender to you via these injections. There's something about this medical process that isn't kosher. It's all about HR Geiger. Is that how you pronounce that? Um, uh, yes, I believe it is. It is. It is very HR Geiger. Like it's this. It's it's this. It's all about penetration imagery. It's about organic penetration. The other reason that RGT are relevant to Cult Watch is notably they are linked to the Heritage Foundation, which obviously uh, has links to the anti-abortion stuff, but also 
it seems like as the ongoing kind of will they, won't they flirtation that various turfs are making with the wider anti-mask kind of like baz milieu, I guess you call it. It seems like if there is a breakthrough, it might happen here. Similarly, if there's a breakthrough into kind of like mainstream kind of turf stuff, our duty is talking about the sorrows of little Timmy and how we have to protect little Timmy in this kind of like plethora of different ways. Because it, as we were talking about when we were discussing this episode, it seems like the turfs are kind of just throwing out front groups to see what sticks. Um, and our duty is almost like a collective of all of them. It's like health anxiety, paternalistic denial of like autonomy of trans people, well-funded kind of like general uh, anti-LGB stuff. It's, 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 it's got everything mixed together. So if any group is going to become more of an issue and more than just another front, slightly concerned our duty may. Or if it's not our duty, it will be a group that adopts the successful aspects of that one. Um, the reason why we're concerned about this is that, like, when we were talking about this episode, the way that I framed it was, um, it's almost like there's a random number generator at, at work. Like, they're, they're literally just throwing things at the wall and, and seeing what sticks. Uh, they're trying to cover every single possible eventuality by throwing, like, slightly different iterations of the same campaign until they hit the exact frequency that resonates with their target audiences. For some of those target audiences, they've already got that. For some of them, they haven't. And it's these things like RGT, which are these attempts to coalesce these various different ideas into an organizational whole that are concerning. Because at the end of the day, what they are essentially, to, what they are essentially doing is they're trying to kind of like brute force a combination lock. Eventually, they may be successful. Uh, so far, they've shown like a decent amount of momentum, and that's something to be concerned about. Because if that trend isn't reversed, then it does indicate that they'll be able to eventually brute force it and come up with a successful populist narrative. And they're quite close to that already, obviously. Well, whether or not they're, they're close to an, a truly populist narrative, they're getting certainly a helping hand from every fucking apparatus of the state that there is going whether that's the NHS GICs or the BBC or Liz Truss in the literal government. Um, so it, it's worth flagging this stuff up and also looking at their symbology and, and looking like at what combinations they're trying to brute force the lock with. And it will provide us clues into effective opposition. Indeed. Uh, our last update on Cult Watch is just general update on anti-vax stuff. Um, there's still ongoing anti-vax, anti-mask protests in, in Britain in particular, and obviously there's kind of ongoing stuff in the US, but it has tailed off since the last couple of major demos. In the UK's case, this has coincided with, a, with the, uh, a huge spike in coronavirus cases. In the case of the American political situation, I think you know, that, that has arguably kind of, it's a little bit less of a settled question because of the way that Trump behaves. But it is important to note this stuff because of like the growing overlap between anti-vax, anti-mask stuff and turf stuff. If if that is going to be one of uh, like transphobia's injection routes into the political mainstream, then if those movements are temporarily arrested by a a die down in activity, then it does suggest that things that that 
method of, of injection might be put on hold for a little bit of time. I'm hesitant to make a prediction, but we should consider that possibility. Just before we sign off, I'd just like to credit again Molly Noise, uh, who is on Twitter at I'm Pure Noise, no spaces, no um, apostrophes. Uh, who provided us this like natty little Marshall theme uh, for this episode and this kind of like series on masculinity, which will start next week with the part two of uh, of our of our deep dive into penises. Um, so thank you so much again. Please give her other work a listen and uh, give her a follow. She did literally compose custom music for us, the idiots making an idiot podcast. Uh, so thank you so much again. Indeed, and next episode we will pick up on dong negativism. Uh, as we've mentioned, this is a, a bit of a ripe topic, so it's it's going to be a weird one. So from us, thank you very much, and we will be back soon. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>